1: Welcome to
2: Longform. I'm Max Linsky, and my co-hosts Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff are not here today. This is a special Friday episode, our first special episode of any kind. Uh, But luckily we are joined by our fourth co-host, the long-lost Joshua Behrman, who actually is the guy who came up with the idea for this podcast. And then as soon as he uh, put the idea in our heads, Josh got very, very busy. Because uh, his 2007 Wired story uh, is the basis for Ben Affleck's new movie Argo, which premieres today. Uh, so we decided we'd call Josh up and uh, see what it's like to have a story of yours become the most talked about movie in America. There he is, Joshua Berman. All right, Josh. We, we will uh, we will get quickly into uh, your role in this massive Hollywood movie. Uh, but before we do, I think we need to get into your role in uh, this very very small uh, <laughs> literary journalism podcast.
1: Sure, let's start there. Let's we'll bury the lead. I just I just want to I, I
2: think that people should know that uh, this thing was your idea. Yeah. Well, uh, since,
1: especially since. Um, Uh, I invented the whole idea of the podcast and talking about magazine stories. Um, I don't know if it actually can be claimed to be a proprietary concept, Um, but I did sort of, you know, like had been thinking about it for a while, thought it was cool, talked to you guys. I think you guys have been thinking about something similar, and then with Evan, did a little bit of brainstorming, and then, uh, you know, promptly uh, disappeared and delegated all the work to you. So it's really worked out quite well.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you got us really excited and uh and then pretty much haven't done anything.
1: Yeah, I'm like a I'm like a motivator. I'm like a I'm like a parachute, you know, sort of ideas guy. Come in, <laughs> you know yeah, sure. everybody worked up, hand it off, yeah. and then move on to the next thing.
2: Uh, but I, I think, you know, whatever. I, I can't be uh too harsh about it because you have like a pretty good excuse you've been pretty busy uh
1: it's true it's true i've been sort of running around um both trying to finish a couple of stories and dealing with the run-up to uh the re- release of this movie argo which which was adapted from a piece of mine that i wrote uh, by now is five and a half years ago in wired
2: Okay, so let's, uh, for anyone who uh, is listening and has not looked at the internet or a newspaper in the last, like, five days, Argo is the new film directed by Ben Affleck. It opens today, and uh, Josh, maybe you can just, like, walk us through the the story you wrote for Wired.
1: Sure. So the story um, is, it takes place during the Iran hostage crisis in 1979, or it started in 1979. The hostage crisis went on for 444 days, right at the beginning um, as the embassy was sort of being slowly taken over uh, by the revolutionary students slash militants, there was a building in the back, uh, I think it was the the consulate, and it had faced the street, so the people in there decided that they could, you know, rather than get taken hostage like everybody else, so they didn't really know what was going to happen, but it was very clearly dangerous. They ran out the back and escaped sort of out into hostile Tehran, and then it became clear that the people in the rest of the embassy were going to be held. There was sort of suddenly no official U.S. presence in the country. Nobody could help them. So they were sort of stuck on the lam in Tehran. And there were six Americans who eventually all wound up uh, in the Canadian ambassador's residence and uh, sort of took them in. Ambassador at the time was this guy, Ken Taylor, this very kind of suave and stylish diplomat, uh, kind of cut an interesting uh, figure in the diplomatic community. He took them in. And it was quite dangerous because, I mean, the place was in turmoil. There was revolution in the streets. There was no real way to get out of the country. The clock was sort of ticking. A couple months had gone by. The uh, administration didn't really know what to do, how to get these people out, sort of, you know, down to the wire. And then uh, in stepped Tony Mendez, who was a CIA operative, and he was part of the he was in a, he was in a part of the cia known as the office of technical services and in, i think i think it was like the authentication branch of the office of technical <laughs> services which means he was like a forger and kind of like deception guy in the that's the OTS is sort of where they would make like Fidel's exploding cigars and like put a like wire a mic into a living cat and stuff like that so he was kind of he was known as the master of disguise (laughs) that was like his informal moniker and because he had been involved in all these sort of deception operations and whatnot and so he came up with this plan to uh, do an exfiltration as they call it in the trade where he would go in and uh, he would hook up with them in their, you know, dangerous limbo, and go out with them under this elaborate cover story, which then also is a insane twist, and which plays a prominent role in the movie and in the article, which is that the idea was Tony would pretend with the hostages to be, or the house guests, to be a Hollywood location uh, production on a location scout in Tehran. And, uh, so that's what he did. And it worked, you know, he like went, created this cover story, hooked up with them. They kind of put on these identities and went out to the airport and managed to get home safely. Um, and so it was this kind of like little known silver lining in an otherwise, you know, kind of disastrous chapter in American history and whatnot. And, uh, so I first heard about this story from a friend of mine and, um, and, you know, sort of said, that was a great, that's a great idea. And I kind of tracked everybody down and put the whole narrative together. And I it
2: is a completely insane story it's like a, it's hard to believe it as you're reading it once you started reporting i mean after you first heard about it how quickly did you realize like uh, okay this, this is starting to sound like a movie this this feels like a movie
1: well i i first heard about it, the guy that i heard about it that told me about the story is his name is david clements and he is a movie guy uh but sort of a very independent movie producer where his whole thing is he kind of finds these unusual true stories and takes them around Hollywood and and tries to set them up as as movies, and he'd been doing that for a while, and and you know, with some success and whatnot, and and but he had tried, you know, he had he he knew a little, he knew pieces of this story. Like it was, had been declassified in 1997 mm-hmm. as part of the CIA's 50th anniversary jubilee celebrations, and um, so there were bits of it in the newspaper, but that wasn't really enough to quite get the story. So he was the one that kind of had this idea. He's like, you know, this is a cool story, it's up your alley, because I was getting into sort of narrative. Yarns in unusual settings, or true crime stories, or whatever, and uh, you know, he's like, you know, see, see what you can do with the story, and put it all together, and then maybe we'll be able to, you know, maybe it will, it'll, you know, it'll get people interested in this right. movie. And so it was,
2: it was like a, a possible movie idea from the start.
1: It was, although I had never had any experience with that, so I didn't really believe that that was going to happen. You know, I was like, <laughs> sure, or whatever. You know, I mean, I don't know, and. Uh, You know, I was only, all I knew about, uh, even though I grew up in Los Angeles, I didn't grow up around that stuff, and my writing, sort of, at that time, I was at the LA Weekly, um, which was a once great publication, the Los Angeles Village Voice, um, and uh, where you could do all this kind of great writing, and that's, but it wasn't movie-oriented at all, so I didn't know anything about that, and so, in fact, I remember sitting as I was finishing the story, and, like, it came out, you know, pretty good, I was like, oh, this kind of reads you know, it was sort of the most kind of caperish story I had done, so it kind of read that way. You know, it sort of wound up being written, you know, cinematically.
2: And that's also kind of how it was presented in the magazine, right?
1: Yeah. Then Wired, the art department read the story and were like, "Oh, let's, uh, uh, you know, sort of illustrate this thing with storyboard versions, sort of of the story." And so the opening, the facing spreads of like a good eight, ten-page spread, and the facing opening, facing page opening spread had a big giant storyboard of the, of the story of, you know, the narrative. And so that was obviously cool. i actually remember I was looking at that and I was like, you know what, this would make a cool movie. I was sitting with David, I was showing it to him and we were like, this would be perfect for George Clooney, you know? (laughs) And um, it very quickly, in fact, turned out that George Clooney wanted it. And so, you know, like, Not long after David and I had been sort of having our daydream, we were, you know, kind of had this project that George Clooney had taken into, you know, quickly into the Empyrean Heights of sort of Hollywood land. Uh,
2: (laughs) So tell me a little bit about how, uh, like, uh, how closely do you work with the screenwriter in in a situation like this? I mean, are you, uh, are you like fact checking the work?
1: Well, no, I'm not fact checking, but I was, you know, um, I mean, both Tony and I uh, are consultants on the movie. I think Tony was much more heavily consulted since like Ben Affleck plays him. And, uh, you know, he was there and everything. But I had obviously done like a lot of research and I, I like, you know, compiled all of it. And there's all these extra interviews and material and whatever documentaries and books and stuff that I had gathered, I sent like a whole couple boxes to the production company immediately. And then eventually when they had the screenwriter, He went through all that stuff and then as the scripts got written and sort of the development process continued, you know, I would look at things and sort of like offer some suggestions or details or things that I remembered or some interesting thing. I would put in my two cents every so often. I don't really, you know, like to be honest, like Chris uh, was so good that he didn't really need that much help. Like he intuited, you know, sort of like... The, the like atmosphere and the tone and all the details that were in that story onto into script format and into adapting it into script format and his first draft was really good I mean it's like I've seen now other I've gone through the adaptation process with other stories of mine that have since been optioned and like that does not usually happen you know I'd say right. screenwriters often need quite a bit of help and like understanding like what the real true texture of a character or story is and you know what they would supply on their own. I always find to you know kind of like like miss the mark, and it's kind of better to work from the real material and whatever. Um, you know, but Kristen, you know, Chris did all that and supplied like the structure. Like you know, he moved a few things around and he invented some dramatic a couple of really important dramatic sequences that, like, up the ante and, like, really create a climactic third act and all this kind of stuff that sort of isn't in the story, you know? But for the most part, like, from him on the way up, like, and with including Clooney and Ben Affleck, who is a very smart dude and uh, is intensely interested in the Middle East already and totally steeped himself in, like, history and, the you know, culture of the time and all the details. Like, there was this real... In, uh, a lot of attention paid to, like... To realism and to make it feel natural and 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 it works like it feels very like immediate and vivid and gripping and it's kind of what i imagined (laughs) as i was writing the story like it's quite shocking to see it sort of up on the screen
2: that's got to be pretty like uh it's got to be pretty satisfying to see it like uh stick so closely to the narrative that you laid out and this sort of structure and uh to see really like see your story up there
1: yeah, I mean, that is exciting. I, um, I I I didn't quite realize even until it happened like how exciting that would be, you know? Like I always thought it was, oh, this is cool. You know, even when it was getting made, like, I mean, it's all way above my pay grade, you know? It's not like Vin Affleck calls me and is like, hey, dude. So I was thinking about in the one scene, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this, like what do you think about? And, you know, but like, but he also, he and Chris and everybody were sort of really animated by that this is a true story and didn't really sort of, you know, and like, and liked the article, the article was a big part of everybody read it, and all the cast and you know, along with the other research, and people you know liked that aspect of it, so it wasn't like I was also just sort of um you know, I think a lot of times the originator of the source material is like not even the lowest guy on the totem pole, but not even on the totem pole. Right. Um, but I sort of was lucky that this, that's kind of the true story was partly what this was about. So I got to kind of be involved with some. Um, yeah. I mean,
2: I feel like the stereotype is that the, uh, you know, the original source that that person's also like uh, bitter, you know, and kind <laughs> yeah. of, like uh, grumbling <laughs> yeah. on the sidelines. It, yeah. Did you feel conflicted at all about the stuff that wasn't true about like the made up scenes?
1: No, not really. I mean, No, because, I mean, in fact, like, you know, even the article, like, ah, kind of like, even when Nick was editing it, we were sort of like, how can we make the end more exciting? Because it's like, they just kind of get out. I mean, there are some delays and there's a lot of tension, like, because, all right, you know, they've been hiding for three months, right? So that's dangerous on its own. But it is even more dangerous to sort of like come out of hiding onto the streets of Tehran, especially going to the airport revolutionary Guards, like in the airports like looking for people right so you know it's and they're and they're pretending to be something so if they get caught like also being sort of like being duplicitous then they are certainly going to get accused to be spies even though they aren't and then that even makes it worse so they're like doubly exposing themselves so it was super dangerous and it was crazy and they had all this tension and like it and in fact they didn't have like the right forms at a certain point it's kind of a complicated aspect of the uh, immigration at the Maribot airport at the time, which is actually also is a detail that finds its way into the movie. But they got snagged at, you know, some counters and the plane was delayed and, you know, and, um, but like nobody chased them down the tarmac, uh, which is what (laughs) happens in the movie, which is very exciting. Um, So, you know, even in the story, we're like, oh, we kind of need to, you know, sort of try to figure out how to make it, how to make it read a little bit better. And then of course, once it's being adapted, of course, you know, they're going to have to come up with something. And Chris what he says, and which I find, which I also sort of felt as I was watching it, but then I later heard him say what he, what, what he did there, so what happens at the end, not to be a spoiler, uh, but like they get chased and, and then they get away. Um, but they um, there's this like crazy chase sequence in the airport, which uh, he sort of said like that was like an external dramatization of like the insane internal tension and fear that was going, you know, like they thought that there was somebody on there. Heels at all times, and that at any right. moment they could be inked at a line or the plane could be stopped or whatever. So, like, you know, so there's, so it's sort of like true in essence to their, you know, experience, right? Right.
2: It's some kind of representation of what must be like a, a completely insane level of anxiety.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, it is sort of like an emotional justification for like having to create like some drama. Um, but I think it's a fair one. And, um, and i found it to be kind of instructive as a writer because he also did other things where he made he was much more he was the script is much better at sort of making it feel dangerous when they're when the host when the house guests are kind of trapped for all that time like i kind of glossed over some of those things actually <laughs> i looked back at my article and i was yeah, like yeah i
2: mean the piece kind of like hints that like they sort of had a pretty good time <laughs> It's like there's a lot of scotch on hand. They played, yeah, board games.
1: totally. Like I was struck by that. I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. Like I liked those details. You know, when you're writing a narrative piece, like you are just looking for like that, you know, one really specific detail that then like makes the reader realize that this has this happened, you know, right? So, like, that's how kind of how I feel about those narrative stories is that there's, like, four or five key details that, like, it all, that actually are, like, the pins that sort of hold it, you know, together for the reader. And so sometimes you get a little bit, you know, too in love with those details, like, that they, you know, Uh, had a certain kind of scotch or whatever (laughs) and yeah
2: whenever you read this story i was like yeah it kind of sounds like those are like uh pretty good parties
1: yeah i mean i think i think to some extent well listen like they're in the ambassadorial digs you know those are pretty good digs and they have they've got all kinds of great stuff being flown in and three four house keepers and you know and cooks and stuff so like it's not bad living if you are not at, under threat at any moment of being dragged out of the house by, by, <laughs> right. by like zealots who might kill you, you know? And so that was the key sort of like part of the experience that I did not relay that is, as well as in the movie. And it's not like Chris invented that. Like that is for sure, you know, like, you know, part of the story. And it's just, it was kind of interesting to see actually.
2: So, I mean, you've got a story, a magazine story you wrote about uh, a fake, Hollywood operation that was actually a political operation now your magazine story about a fake Hollywood operation about a real political operation has been adapted into a real movie (laughs) Which uh, Spends a good deal of its time as I understand it kind of spoofing Hollywood, can you like unpack all that? uh, Meta ness for me.
1: Yeah, there's this yeah, there's sort of nested layers of reality in the thing though. There's like a uh, This is a movie about a fake movie That in turn was sort of like taken up from the ashes of another fake movie. And I mean, one of the things that I liked about the original that attracted me to the story was that it was kind of this great caper and a yarn, but that had these interesting themes about, you know, artifice and reality and using uh, fiction to create nonfiction and sort of how Washington and Hollywood are sometimes in the same business and like projecting illusions can, you know, create something tangible. Um, even from the instance of like the hostage takeover, like to some extent, like there's an illusion created that an embassy is not the host country that on one side of the wall it's Iran and the other side is the United States. And it's like something everybody agrees to until the first guy climbs over the gate and says, no, we do not accept this illusion. (laughs) The reality is (laughs) we're in your embassy. Um, and so, you know, so that's kind of a political illusion, you know, and so, um, this, I sort of like that, and that is carried all the way through. You know, it's, I, I've, I sort of like that, um, that Chris Terrio explicitly put that in the script. I mean, he even has a, like a really nifty kind of thing where he combined various aspects of the true story about like this press conference that when the CIA came to Hollywood and created their fake movie out of this other movie, Lord of Light, that movie had sort of crashed and burned spectacularly at this after this press conference where the guy was trying to drum up business for this movie. So he used a press conference to try to create an image that he's making the biggest movie of all time. Um, and he was going to build this theme park that would have a bowling alley staffed by robots. And Rosie Greer was there dressed like an alien. And it was this kind of ridiculous kind of stagecraft. And... Um, all the reporters there were like this sounds fishy and they started digging and realized that his production manager was embezzling the funds and it all sort of died right and so it turned out to be a fake movie cia used that to make its own fake movie um to kind of get uh to to create a political reality and now of course there's a movie that itself uses artifice um and some very very astute kind of cerebral viewers have asked if like it was intentional that there's some kind of double meta commentary where, like, the movie, which you know has been staged, <laughs> at some point is also kind of commenting on the fact that you are being told an illusion now about you know using fiction to create nonfiction and that you know viewers will think this is real. Um, I don't think that that yeah, was intended. Yeah, I mean, I,
2: I can say that uh, I am less sure now uh, <laughs> that you are not in the CIA <laughs> than was yesterday.
1: I know it's all it's all about mirrors, mirrors within mirrors. Um,
2: That is totally a CIA guy's answer to that question.
1: Exactly. Doesn't quite answer it, but doesn't not answer it. Um, But no, I actually, and I really like that. Like, this is kind of like, it's a big movie and it's basically a thriller that's all exciting, but it also gets at these really interesting, um, you know, uh, themes and, uh, you know, like statecraft and stagecraft and, you know, art and fiction and reality and stuff that, uh, you know, you don't normally see in a movie like that. So I'm excited that, that it's sort of true to like even the like weird subtextual themes that are way that started with the article when
2: when you were reporting it were there any other great uh like anecdotes that you came up with i mean I, you know a guy like tony Mendez, it feels like uh there's got to be more stories there
1: yeah well the 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 initial sort of the alternate lead that i wrote uh was about this one mission that tony um, executed in Laos, uh, which uh, was neutral during the Vietnam War. This is earlier. This is like 73 or somewhere in there. And Laos being neutral was also the staging ground for all kinds of you know, espionage. And so the Russians and the Chinese and the Vietnamese and the Cambodians, everybody had their their agents there looking for information. And so the CIA, a black CIA officer, which was, I think, fairly unusual at the time, and certainly was stood out like a sore thumb in Laos, um, had cultivated a asset in the, I think one of the ministries of the Laotian government and needed to get information from him. And at the time, there were so many spies in there that Tony tells a funny story about how, like, the main traffic circle in Vientiane, Shan, the cultural capital of Laos, sometimes, like, an agent would pull up And to pick up an asset and like the wrong asset would get in, he was like waiting for the Russian spy and he got into like the Chinese spy's car, (laughs) you know, like that's how how much kind of like subterfuge and, you know, kind of like hijinks was going on. And so, and there was this one instance where like, I think they needed to get those, the, the black CIA officer and the Laotian minister had to get out of the country or get somewhere in secret. And so Tony already being hooked up with his pal, John Chambers called and said, Hey, I need some." masks to disguise these guys so John Chambers sent masks that are you know these kind of full latex masks with the hair and everything and um so he man and it worked he managed to disguise these two guys as you know regular old kind of white dudes who were like having tea like you know somewhere in public and discussing matters of interest or I think also they had to get out through a roadblock at one point so there was kind of all this stuff that was pulled off with these two guys and the sort of especially funny thing about it was John Chambers, I don't know if it was a current movie or a previous movie, but for whatever reason, the two masks that he had and which he sent were for Victor Mature and Rex Harrison. And so (laughs) so it looked like Victor Mature and Rex Harrison were sort of like, you know, palling around uh, Laos together in 1973.
2: (laughs) And no one and no one cared.
1: Uh, apparently not. It was a wild success. But now you know that if you ever see Victor Mature and Rex Harrison sort of like in the shadows in the Pianza San Marco or somewhere, then like there is espionage happening.
2: (laughs) Uh, There's the first story you had optioned. And, you know, it can't really go a whole lot better than this, right? The actual (laughs) guy that you were fantasizing about optioning the story (laughs) does. It goes and gets made. You're happy with how closely it's stuck to your story. Uh, It's now got you know, as much like Oscar buzz as I can imagine the movie having kind of. Um, Are you going to, are you now starting to choose stories based on topics that will work well for movies? I mean, is that in your mind when you're looking around for the next piece you're going to do?
1: Well, first let me just um, thank you for reminding me that it is in fact all downhill from here. (laughs) (laughs) And I have thought about this many times, you know, well, I guess that's it. Better enjoy it, you know. And um, the but, uh, the, the point question, of this whole
2: podcast just to make you feel bad. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. The point is always to just you know celebrate someone's achievement as the high water mark of their career. Absolutely. I mean, I
2: just, if there's a way that I could bring you down a peg or two, I'd love
1: to. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, but, you know, I, as for the question about sort of like the narrative, like the sort of the cinematic appeal of, of stories, I definitely, you know, saw, like for me, I think the light bulb went on when this story was optioned. Um, and I was, you know, at that time I had done other, you know, I had done cultural essays and criticism and reviews and a lot of political reportage, um, which for some reason, you, one always says reportage. Only in reference to <laughs> political <laughs> reportage, but um, and I had done all kinds of other stuff, but I was starting to get into narrative writing, which I knew because I was attracted to, like kind of weird stories or unusual people and stuff like that, and I have an, I have kind of a high tolerance for the crazies, you know. So I had done this piece about Billy Mitchell, the world's you know sort of uh, sort of most celebrated competitive classic video game player, and had spent a lot of time with that dude and all the kind of weirdos around him. And that was a piece for Harpers. And I think this was my second narrative piece. But I had all these other ones that I wanted to do. And I started realizing that the pieces that were coming were, you know, kind of like stories with a beginning, middle, and end. And like, you know, kind of a strong character or whatever. And so I don't really choose my stories around... Like, like I don't really choose what interests me, obviously. Like, the stories kind of come, and I keep this, like, long list of always, at all times, of, like, here's this kind of cool story. But as you try to flesh out, like, what little weird link could become a larger narrative story, you know, the selection process there starts to select for stories that, you know, true life tales that the movie people also could potentially be interested in because they're just that kind of story. And since I had an experience in like that process, I think it's only once you kind of see it in action that you're like, "Oh, I can yeah, sure. This next story can also be like that." And you kind of know how to like steer the story. Uh I mean, not in the writing, but once it's done because, you know, like in the magazine process, like you sort of just still have to like satisfy the magazine and your editor and like the story sort of is the print story for its own purposes and for the venue and like how much space you got and whatever. Um, so you, so I don't really, you know, or I certainly try not to, um, you know, tinker with the story with the movie in mind, but I certainly do now as like, Oh, this story, you know, like, you know, this is a good one. And like this story also could have some legs, you know? (laughs) And so, so yeah, so I've gotten sort of excited about that. And I've, and some of my other stories have been, have been, um, have gone off into the, you know, sort of entertainment, into the development pipeline, which almost always means nothing, by the way, <laughs> um, and doesn't go anywhere. So it's like rather a miracle that this has that this has happened.
2: How are you going to celebrate tomorrow, man? We're, we're taping this on a Thursday afternoon and, and the movie opens on Friday.
1: That is a good question. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. What should I do? You should go see it. I'll go see it. I should go see it with, like, a big, uh, you know, opening night audience somewhere. The Man yeah. Chinese. Maybe it's playing with the Man Chinese.
2: I bet you it is.
1: Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Man Chinese. I'm going to bring a hammer. I'm going to break up the footprints and handprints of some existing, you know, like Clark Gable or something. <laughs> Pour my own cement. <laughs> and then put my hands and feet there and kind of, like, write my own name in there. I think, um,
2: I think that's pretty much the only option. i us see how else you could spend your Friday night.
1: Or I might go to, there's a theater in Pasadena where I grew up called the Academy Theater, which sounds fancy. Like it has something to do with like the motion picture academy, but actually it's just like the super ghetto theater that has been broken into like six different tiny little theaters and which costs like $2 and where you can get White Castle like in the theater. (laughs) And um, that might be a good place to see it.
2: Those both sound like good options, but I think you should go see it. You should go and like, you should just go see it and like, and and watch people experience it. I think that'd be, uh,
1: yeah i might. Like, I mean, I've seen it enough. It's like, all right, I get it. They're going to, you know, they're going to make it. <laughs> no, I have to say, I totally actually. Know, I totally know how this movie ends. I got to say, I still, I've seen it three times now, twice with an audience. And like, I, the third time I was like, okay, like now I'm going to kind of get bored. But I, but, I, but I didn't. It is very well crafted. Like the, you know, like the actual, it's, it's, like the way it is put together is it's very well done. I'm totally biased, you know, <laughs> but like, but I think I can objectively say it's, it's a very well done movie.
2: Oh, that sounds like uh that sounds like a blurb for the poster
1: yeah i think i should make a poster for it by the way that just where it quotes me where it's like i i'm biased but i think it's pretty good <laughs> um
2: <laughs> hey josh man thanks for um, thanks for taking the time and thank you in advance for all of the uh incredible episodes of this podcast that you're about to host
1: oh my god they're gonna be so good <laughs> be <fucking> crazy. <laughs> the probing
2: uh, all right we'll talk to you soon man all
1: right talk to you soon
2: thanks for listening i'm max linsky my co-hosts evan ratliff and aaron lammer will be back next week our editor is lauren kirchner go see argo uh it's gonna rule and if you want to read joshua bearman's original wired story it's up right now in full on longform.org you can also read it in longform for ipad which is available on itunes we'll see you next week
0: you can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed.